0: This is episode 153 with manual therapist, movement expert, and author, Mr. Todd Hargrove. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm Jason Fitzgerald, host of the podcast and head coach of Strength Running. If you're listening, that means you're a runner who wants to improve. And that's our goal here. To give you the training ideas, strategies, and resources to accomplish whatever big goal that you might have, from running your first 5K to qualifying for the Boston Marathon, preventing your next injury, or mastering your mindset. I'll be bringing you the Titans in the fitness world the pro coaches, performance experts, elite runners, sports psychologists, thought leaders, physical therapists, and strength coaches to give you new insights into this incredible sport. I want you to better understand running, to view knowledge as a competitive advantage, and to always have the tools to take your running to the next level. The more you understand the sport, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Don't miss our other 152 episodes, video channel on YouTube, or where it all began, strengthrunning.com, where you can find our coaching services detailed guides on everything from building mental skills to running for beginners to how you can stay healthy and stop getting injured so frequently. I'm excited to announce our newest sponsor, Shorefeet, Feet, located at shorefeet.com. They make a colorless, odorless shoe spray that stops your running shoes from getting so smelly. They sent me a sample recently and I used it on my worst smelling shoes. And guess what? It worked great. The pair smelled from across the room. But after a quick application of the spray, I'd say the smell was reduced by about 95%. And after wearing them a few more times, the smell is now probably 80% less than how it smelled before I used Shorefeet. I consider that a big success. Check them out at surefeet.com. Now let's move on to our topic today, mobility, play, and pain with Mr. Todd Hargrove. Longtime listeners of the show know that I love bringing on a variety of guests who have insights that will help us take our running performances to the next level. If we only listen to running coaches, we'd miss out on other areas of knowledge and would have a more one-dimensional view of the sport. And Todd is the embodiment of that philosophy. He's a former attorney turned manual therapist who scratched his own itch. After years of experiencing pain, he set out to understand what causes it, how to move better and effective strategies for reducing pain and improving your athletic performances. He's now written two books, Better Movement and Playing With Movement, which are interdisciplinary ways of looking at the problems of injury and pain. He talks about everything from stress physiology to complex systems theory and how that all relates back to athletes. This conversation was wide-ranging, and it touched on subjects like static stretching, mobility, dynamic flexibility, how much of pain is mental, strategies for having more fun in your training, and more. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode, so get ready to take some notes. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Todd Hargrove. Todd, I'm excited to speak with you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much
1: for having me, Jason.
0: So... I came across your book, Playing with Movement, How to Explore the Many Dimensions of Physical Health and Performance, and I just knew that I needed to talk with you. So I've already bought your book, and I can't wait to dive in. Full disclosure, I haven't read it just yet, but I wanted to explore some of the issues that you bring up in the book, specifically around play and movement and pain. Um, But maybe we can start with because this book is fairly wide-ranging in the topics that it covers, maybe we can start with why you wrote this book in the first place. Was there a problem that you were experiencing or a perspective about this big topic that you felt wasn't being addressed?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the, the one of the basic premises of the book is that, uh, or at least what I try to do, is divide your physical activity, kind of think of it on a spectrum from Uh, play to work. So physical activities that are more in the nature of play are very intrinsically motivating, uh, exploratory. They're fun. They're variable. They're they're very open-ended and unstructured. Nobody's telling you what to do. You have a lot of choice in what you're doing, and there's a curiosity to it. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is physical activities that I would call work. uh, And these would be very repetitive, invariant, highly structured and prescribed and scientific and someone's telling you exactly what to do. There's not much exploration. You know where the destination is and you're following instructions to get there. And they're not very intrinsically motivating or fun. They might be boring, uh, take a lot of discipline and willpower to complete. And I think both of those kinds of activity are good and are productive and can help you achieve your goals. But I think as a society, Uh, trainers and therapists, and most people have tipped the balance too much towards thinking of their physical activity as work, and we're paying the price in some ways.
0: Yeah, and that description of activities that are a little bit more work versus a little bit more play just makes me think that distance running as a sport is a lot of repetitive hard work that takes a lot of willpower. And I can't help but think that, you know, it's very difficult to inject a lot of free form play into a sport like running. Do you, do you see running as one of those sports that it might be a little bit more difficult to make playful?
1: Yeah, I I think it is, but, but I think if you look closely, you can see uh, the effort to do that. One is that uh, putting in some variability into what you're doing. So workouts that happen the same way, the same time, the same place, same intensity, uh, every day are inherently less playful than uh, those that involve a lot of variability. And I notice that I'm not an expert on running, but I noticed that standard plans for to be a good runner incorporate uh, a lot of variability in those in those factors, and that, that tends to get ignored by uh, beginners. Am I right? They tend to go out and they kind of want to go out and do that race pace every day, and they kind of neglect, you know, doing a little bit less and a little bit more in terms of intensity.
0: Yeah, that is a common issue among new runners, beginner runners, because uh, I, I don't think they understand the nuance or, or really just it's not that they don't understand it. It's more that they haven't had the experience yet to to know, you know, what is a 50 percent effort versus 60 percent, 70 percent, et cetera, and then being able to play at all those different intensities, even within an easy run, you know, to be able to vary your pace uh, and all that. Uh, now Todd, one of the one of the way, reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because your book is just so broad and wide ranging and it pulls from topics like stress physiology, complex systems theory, functional mobility. Can you maybe summarize the main thesis of the book and and why you wanted to discuss so many seemingly different topics within it?
1: Yeah, well, the idea of complexity kind of ties it all together in a sense. The idea is that uh, human beings are complex, adaptive systems, uh, and one of the one of something that defines a complex adaptive system is that it's kind of like multidimensional. Everything affects everything else, often in unpredictable ways. And when we're when we're looking at trying to become a better performer or have better movement health, we often get very narrow and focused and reductionist in our perspective. You know, measuring one particular variable and maybe overestimating how much we can do to Im- to improve someone just working within that narrow realm. Just just to take uh, an example, something like VO two max and running, I think it's very very uh, emphasized a lot and and probably with good reason. But in like for example, something that I try to understand uh, pain because I'm someone that's uh, worked with a lot of people in pain and studied pain. It's a very complex multifactorial thing, or, or at least it often can be. For example, uh, low back pain is multifactorial and that many, many different things matter. Your, your movement patterns might matter, uh, whether or not you have some damage in your back, like a herniated disc matters, uh, your psychology matters, your environment matters, your nutrition matters, your sleep matters. Many, many different factors interact in complex ways. And if you focus too much on One of them, you kind of missed the forest for the tree. So it's kind of a holistic approach where you're kind to identify all the different dimensions that can affect your movement health, like biomechanics and your strength and your mobility and your sleep and your stress levels. And just trying to kind of broaden your perspective so that you can see all the many different ways you could achieve a goal
0: instead of getting narrowly focused on just one of
1: those factors.
0: I absolutely love that. And you're absolutely right about VO2 max. It's one of those running metrics that a lot of runners care a lot about, but it actually has no impact on your performance. And I I should probably phrase that a little better. It, It is, of course it does. You know, someone with a really high VO2 max is probably a faster runner, but it's not necessarily completely indicative of what your potential is as an athlete. And so many other things go into your performances, everything from your running economy to your lactate threshold, um, your muscle strength and on and on. So you, you're right. I think this, this idea of over-focusing on a single metric can be very misleading and it causes you to get very pigeonholed into a a one-dimensional way of training where, you know, you're only focusing on, you know, one element of your fitness that you're working on, uh, at one time. Um, now, a big part of the book is, is movement and mobility and, and how that uh, really impacts your, your, your kind of fitness practice and, and play and all that. And I, I'd love to offer you a chance to kind of set the record straight on something that most people believe is true about either movement or mobility, but you know is not.
1: Well, uh, one thing is that, uh, well, I'd say that, uh, flexibility tends to be very overrated,
0: uh, as
1: a quality that will help your performance and help keep you out of pain. Uh, and people often don't understand the difference between, uh, flexibility and mobility. So here's just kind of a brief description of that. Flexibility is your range of motion at a joint, you know, how far you can get from A to B. So, uh, your range of motion at the hips, you could maybe define that by how far you get into a forward bend. You know, can you get your palms on the floor? Can you get your chest on the knees? A lot of people think that more flexibility is always better in terms of performance uh, and injury prevention, but there's there's not a lot of good reason to believe that in the research. Um, and static stretching programs to improve flexibility um, have not been shown to be that good of a way to prevent injury and, and get performance. So if you took great athletes, including great runners, and you have them do forward bends, you wouldn't see them go that far into their forward bent. Um, mobility is a slightly different uh, movement quality than flexibility. And I think generally something that athletes have a little bit more of. And uh, it's not so much your range of motion, how far you can go. It's Uh, how functional are you near the end range of a motion that you need to get to do your thing? So it's not so much the length of the road. It's like, what's the quality of the road to your intended destination? What's the speed limit? You know, Is there good parking in that area? Are are there any potholes in the road? So you, you might have not a great range of motion, but getting to your end range of motion, let's say with the hamstrings, can you get there really fast, with power, with speed, reverse directions really quickly? Do you have stability and control at that end range of motion? That's what's going to make you functional in using that range of motion. And that matters for uh, hamstring injury prevention.
0: For sure. Yeah. And I I like this idea. And, you know, I was very heartened to hear you say this because I think uh, I was reviewing a study that the CDC did. They looked at hundreds of other studies on flexibility and runners, and they found that a stretching program has no impact on your ability to prevent injuries. And I think that's just very eye opening. Now, do you recommend that athletes do no static stretching? Or is there a place for that somewhere in the training program?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with the experience and traditions of athletes doing so much static stretching, uh, and that being kind of a part of the way they get ready, and 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 that's intention. With, with the research showing there doesn't seem to be any benefit. Now, it's I, I think that you know, in, in looking to decide whether something's right or wrong, uh, you know, you should look at tradition and you should look at the the research too. So th- those things are intention. So how do you resolve that? I think what what I've heard some people propose, which I think is a decent idea, is all that stretching might be part of like a, uh, you know, just like a psychological way for you to cool down or to warm up. And perhaps there's some benefit to that, or there's a ritual to it, and there's some benefit to that. Or maybe for certain individuals, uh, th- there's a benefit there. So I definitely wouldn't say don't do it. But I would say, uh, if you don't like it, if you suspect that it's a waste of your time and effort, I would look into... <laughs> getting rid of it. Uh, And what you could insert in its favor are more dynamic joint mobility drills where you go to your end range of motion, but in a more dynamic way. So in other words, uh, you know, maybe doing some uh, kind of leg kicks, which gets in a, a dynamic hamstring stretch. Personally, I like that better. It feels more like the activity I'm warming up for. It doesn't take me as long. I like it better. There's reason to believe it might be a better preparation.
0: And that kind of preparation actually does what a warm up should do, right? It elevates your heart rate. Opens up capillary beds, improves your range of motion, lubricates your joints. There's a lot of great things that happen when you complete a series of dynamic stretches uh, rather than just sitting around static stretching where you're not actually warming up. And you know, I think there's a good reason why we call this activity a warm-up. Now, besides those leg swings, is there any other dynamic flexibility movements that you uh, are you find yourself coming back to that are really effective for athletes?
1: Uh, high knees. I mean, your knees are going to get high and that's not going to stretch your hamstrings so much, but it's going to uh, activate the hip flexors through a shortened range, which is something that they're going to have to do when they're they're working. It's going to uh, stretch out some of the glutes and maybe some of the adductors back there. Uh, I would say to prepare for any sports, what what, what I like to see happen uh, is the athlete slowly and progressively getting to the ranges of motion that they're going to have to do, doing the movement patterns that they're going to have to do, uh, from slow to fast and from less ballistic to more ballistic until you're just kind of progressing in the direction of doing the sport. And, uh, I've, I've warmed up for a lot of sports over the years and a lot of different sports. And I, I know that, uh, well, for me, I have some areas that are kind of like harder to warm up than others. You know, so sometimes it's it's the knees or sometimes it's the hamstrings. And so those areas, I go a little slower and spend a little bit
0: more time. For sure. And I think there's a lot of value in thinking about the warm up as a sport-specific activity, something that you definitely want to tailor to whatever activity it is that you're about to engage in. And for our audience, for runners, you know, I, I personally think one of the best warmups is a series of different types of lunges and then some forward and side leg swings. You know, at its simplest, that is a great running specific warm up. Uh, And then, of course, when you start running, you know, let's start at a really easy, easy conversational effort so that, you know, even the beginning of your run is also part of that warm up process. Um, Now, Todd, when we talked earlier about play and how running likely wasn't one of the sports where there's a lot of play in it, you know, just, you know, foundationally. Um, how could we inject more play into a runner's training? What, what would that actually mean for you know your typical endurance runner?
1: Yeah, so one of the – I guess p- partly to answer that question, I want to clarify a little bit something about the word play. Play doesn't mean – it has this connotation that you're talking about, like regressing to childhood or doing cartwheels or acting in a silly, trivial way. The, the more important um, – aspect that I'm trying to get across is is that of intrinsic motivation. So activities are intrinsically motivating if you want to do them just because it's that activity. It's not to get some external goal. It's not extrinsically motivated where you're only doing the activity uh, to, let's say, lose weight or get in shape or something like that. People are going to Show up for activities more, and do them more, and be more intrinsically motivated to do them. If it's if it's just that thing, and uh, for some people, running is is fun. Uh, for some people, it involves some amount of suffering, but it's quite meaningful, and they are very intrinsically motivated uh, to do it, even if it isn't that fun because it's meaningful to them. It's something. It's like a part of their person, um, and that is something. Uh, kind of doesn't sound that much like play, but it is intrinsic motivation. And that's a very important uh, aspect of play. Now, I understand that there's, there's three uh, factors that have been identified by self-determination theory as giving rise to the highest levels of intrinsic motivation. And one of them is uh, autonomy, the ability to make your own choices uh we tend to feel more intrinsically motivated to do something when there's lots of different choices the way to do it so i think if you're following a plan that someone else tells you to do and you didn't have that much choice about it that tends to uh undermine intrinsic motivation uh, another thing is feeling uh competent and good at the thing so if you can kind of like make your frame of mind uh that i'm that i'm good at running and kind of proud of what you're doing that'll make it more playful and the other one is relatedness if the running is related to many different things in your life like related to social relationships you have and and um environments that you like to go into so if you can if you can run with friends if you can run in an environment you like if you can run as part of a community of other people that forms relatedness and that builds intrinsic motivation so just just a few ideas there
0: I think those are really great. And with you explaining all that, I can't help but think back to when I was competing for in college, and I was running in these beautiful woods, you know, in Connecticut, and I was running with my friends, it was a community. And, you know, if I quit the team, I would also just not be able to hang out with many of my friends as much as I could have. And so, you know, in hindsight, it's almost like, I built in this amazing accountability structure around my running without me really even thinking about it.
1: Yep, absolutely. People, people like to look, um, you know, of course, willpower and discipline are important and people are proud of having them. But I think we overestimate the extent to which our behavior is determined by these internal factors. Uh, they're very much determined by the environment that we're in. If you're in a good accountability environment, that, that's going to get you out there Uh, running and you're not going to burn up all of your willpower and discipline on just showing up. You're going to show up automatically because you want to, because you want to be in certain places. You want to be with uh, certain friends.
0: For sure. And, And also the idea of being in an environment that you really enjoy, I think is powerful as well, because I've always found that being in uh, the woods or trail running is so much easier on my psyche than just running along a city road on the sidewalk. You know, I can get lost in the woods for 10 miles, but a five mile road run just feels longer. And I feel like that is one way to have more fun with your training to explore a little bit more. And the side benefit of that is, you know, you're running on some beautiful trails and, you know, that's probably getting you some extra fitness with all those hills and undulating terrain as well.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, um, that's a perfect example of an activity I, I talk about in the book as being more playful. The, the the one then you that you just mentioned, and it's going to be something that you keeps you fresh and you want to show up for more. I mean, it's possible that that running on those trails, maybe for some reason you can't measure the distance as well, or or, or it's or you can't do some specific training variable that you wanted to do, but maybe that's worth sacrificing because of these kind of harder to measure subjective factors related to. How much you want to show up for it. You know, when you're done with those runs, it's probably taken less out of you than a similar run on the pavement just because the psychology was different. The different psychology is different physiology as well.
0: Yeah, I think whenever we can shift the frame a little bit and think more almost like just have more fun with the same work that we're going to do anyways, you know, a 10 miles is 10 miles, no matter if you're running on the road, or on the trails. But you know, if that trail run makes you feel alive, and just is a pleasure for you rather than actual what feels like drudgery, then I think, you know, you're just going to increase your motivation over the long term your drive to train, and you'll be much more likely to follow through with your training
1: yeah absolutely and 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 there's there's lots of i think there's lots of variables like that lots you know the location the people also the time- the type of workout too i mean in, in doing training over the years that not just running i i you know I think maybe today it would be i mean I've trained for soccer and for squash you know maybe I know that the best kind of training would be kind of a long slow distance approach, but I just really want the intensity because I'm more motivated by that or maybe the reverse. So I I won't go with what I think is, you know, scientifically the best thing to do, but I'll just go with kind of what I want to do because it makes it so much easier to do. And there's benefit to that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, Todd, you have a section in your book called a balanced movement diet. And, you know, when I was looking through the table of contents, you know, my first reaction was, oh, no, running is a sport that isn't balanced at all. It's basically the same movement over and over again all the time. But how do you recommend runners have a more balanced movement diet while they're training? Are there certain things they can do to to just move in different planes of motion and in different ways to what I I would assume is to not only have more fun with their training, but actually get more out of it as well?
1: Yeah, so the diet analogy, I I think I got that from uh, Nick Tuminello or Katie Bowman. and, And the idea... Uh, is in deciding, you know, what what kinds of exercises are healthiest for people. There's kind of a rough analogy to food. So, you know, uh, food is something that's healthy, not in any one food you eat, but all the different foods you eat and variety is important. And, and a food like, let's say broccoli, which is healthy in a small dose, well, it's going to start, any food is going to become unhealthy in a, in a very, very large dose. And Almost any food is healthy in a very small dose. So how do you, how do you get the variety and the, the dosage is right? You can kind of think of it in terms of a diet. Well, if you're doing nothing but nothing but running, uh, running's a very, very healthy to do thing to do, but if that's all you do and you're doing a ton of it, it starts to become more like a toxin than, than a nutrient. So you should try to balance that out with other things, of course. And, and I think that uh, you know, through tradition, through practice, runners have probably kind of figured that out pretty well on their own. Uh, You know, they know they have a decent idea of what's going to keep them injury free. Uh, I know some runners, a nice compliment for them to the running is something like yoga, where you go through very large ranges of motion, you work on stabilizer strength for certain kinds of muscles. And it's a very kind of relaxing, parasympathetic type of a thing that, that chills you out and helps prevent the injuries. And then strength training would be a good another good complement as well because you you know you're building up the strength of some of the muscles that aren't able to be strengthened and that might help prevent injury and, and uh, promote performance as well.
0: So this almost sounds like we are trying to balance the very sport specific movement of running with other types of exercise that are going to both complement the running itself and you know. Maybe allow us to better express our running fitness, but then also counteract some of the imbalances and some of the repetition of running so that we can stay healthy and not get so many injuries,
1: yeah, yeah, and another way to look at it is I think the you know the government recommendations for healthy exercise for everyone, which is based on just kind of mountains of research about the Benefits of different kinds of exercises. You know, they tend to think in I think maybe three or four different categories. There's aerobic exercise, which running covers fantastically. Strength or resistance exercise, which is pretty much missing from running. And then uh, maybe a little bit less important, uh, maintaining good mobility and functional movement patterns, which running does a little bit of that. But that's where strength training or yoga would come in. So getting getting all of those, the the aerobic, the strength. The mobility, movement patterns thing—that's to me—that's kind of covering your bases, and you know, just adding a little bit to the running is, is a way to do that.
0: Well, Todd, you're really speaking my language here because I'm sort of the coach who's always talking about other things besides running. You know, I'm kind of uh, really into strength training for runners because I understand the just enormous benefit that it has and not only for your performance, helping you actually race faster, but in helping you stay healthy and prevent injuries. So, uh, I think all of that work that we do outside of running is just so integral from the dynamic warmup to cross training, to strength training. I don't even consider strength training, cross training. I just consider it, you know, part of the normal training that you have to do to reach your potential as a runner. So Uh, I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that you think that there's such an important role that that activity has to play in, uh, the runners training. And, and really it, it goes beyond a runner's training because it's for their general health as well. You, you avoid these things, the strength training, the cross training, almost at your own peril, because sooner or later it'll come back to bite you.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there is this tension between, uh, general health and performance. I, this, I have this, theory that if you're uh, getting involved in some new sport where there's running or strength training and ma- many other things as you pass from the novice stage to the intermediate stage the additional exercise you're doing is going to be healthy for you and promote your general health and then as you're passing from the intermediate stage into the expert and especially the elite stage the extreme amount of training stress that you have to go under and especially the specificity of it will probably start working to undermine your general health, so you have to sacrifice a little bit gen a general health to to get to the highest levels uh, of running and and so I think people who you know get to that are, are progressing to those levels kind of notice that
0: <laughs> yeah for sure I mean those elite runners you know they almost have to run hundred miles a week or more to be competitive on the world stage and You know, there's, there's very few people who would say that running 120 miles a week is a good thing for your general health. I mean, you're clearly doing that for a very specific reason. You can get most of the heart health benefits of running with 20 to 30 minutes a couple times a week, you know, certainly not, uh, 15 miles a day.
1: Yeah. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. You were talking about I was one. So I kind of just started uh, a running program. I haven't been much of a runner before, but I've been doing it for about three months now training for 5k and I'm running about six times a week. I can still include a little strength training. Uh, I was wondering what what you know for uh, me for let's say an intermediate novice runner. How much how many strength training sessions do you recommend in a week? What's your kind of general you know, three times a week or how, how do you go about that?
0: Sure. So my philosophy on this is, uh, kind of depends on your experience level. You know, are you comfortable in a gym lifting weight? If you're not, or you just don't have that available, there's other options for you. So if we're not talking about the gym and weightlifting, then I have a pretty simple framework. I like to see runners sandwich their runs between a dynamic warm up to start. And then about 10 to 20 minutes of, runner specific core strength or other mobility work after the run is finished. And so, if you're running 6 days a week, I'd love for you to do 6 six sessions of some some type of core strength work. Now, these sessions are not super challenging. You know, you're not in the gym doing heavy squats or deadlifts, that kind of thing. But, you know, we're talking about maybe uh, a a 10 or 15 minute core circuit where you're hitting everything from you know your glutes to your lower back, your obliques, your deep lower abs. Uh, more of a comprehensive core circuit than just working on you know those visible abs right in front. Uh, and then there's r- more runner-specific strength training that has a little bit more of a focus on the hips and the glutes to help you stay healthy and to improve performance. Um, but that is my philosophy. And then if you Uh, are comfortable in the gym you want to actually lift some weights then we can replace two of those body weight strength and core days with a dedicated session in the gym where we are lifting relatively heavy weight and we're kind of going through some of those more fundamental compound multi-joint movements
1: yeah cool that well that sounds kind of like what i'm doing
0: (laughs) oh great Yeah, I think I think it's really helpful for not only the injury prevention benefits, you know, if you follow every run with 10 or 15 minutes of some body weight exercises, I think it's fantastic for helping you stay healthy. Uh, But then it's also for further re ingraining this idea that you aren't just a runner, you are an athlete that specializes in running. And I think that is an important distinction, because then, you know, you start adding in all the other things that I think runners should be adding into their training from strength work to drills to core work to uh, bounding exercises or plyometrics, and the list goes on of all the other things we do outside of just going out there for in easy run or logging our mileage, because that's what really makes us into a more well-rounded athlete, which is great for our
1: dimensional idea that I'm talking about. Yeah,
0: exactly. So how's your, uh, it's great to hear that you started running. Uh, (laughs) how's it going so far? Are you up to a 5k distance?
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the interesting thing for me is, is basically developing the intrinsic motivation to do it. So my whole life I've been, soccer player and a a tennis player and a squash player and it's all ball sports i mean to me in my whole life it's like i can be motivated to run around at high intensity or low intensity for a while if there's a ball to run after (laughs) but for for most of my life running has just been miserable and but since the pandemic hit and i haven't been able to play ball sports i'm like i'm gonna figure this out i'm gonna do it uh and at some point i developed some intrinsic motivation for running and i'm following a, a running program and i I think there's two things that that got me motivated. One was um uh going really slow. I just got somehow I just uh, became okay with just going really slow because running always seems to me to be too slow because I'm like, I wouldn't catch a ball at this pace, so <laughs> I need to run faster, but then I'd burn out too quickly and it was frustrating.
0: that's that's pretty funny um yeah that's uh that's a big reason for a lot of runners to get discouraged with the sport because they just you know try to run most of their runs too hard it ends up being pretty challenging uh and i know for me when i started running as soon as you get a couple weeks in you know maybe three four weeks in and every run stops being mostly a struggle once i started experiencing a little bit of progress and progress does happen fairly quickly when you first start running I got hooked because I just loved this, uh, this idea that if I put in the work, I will see progress and improvement. And it goes back to that idea of having autonomy over your, your sport, your fitness. And, and that's what I felt. And that's what really gave me that intrinsic motivation.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very similar to, to what I experienced. And the, and the other is just being kind of a, a science geek and, and reading about this stuff and, and learning about it. And applying scientific principles to the training process, I think that doing that can easily, in some, some ways, can undermine the playfulness of what you're doing because it's, it's telling you what to do too much. And it's, uh, But in another way, if you really kind of like numbers and have fun with numbers, it can make it more fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for any, you know, a lot of runners are these, you know, hard charging kind of folks who, who like to have a plan and then execute that plan. You know, that is, you know, a, a runner's mentality in a nutshell right there. Um, now, Todd, when you talked about, you know, your experience with running and it was a lot of misery at first, but now you're, you're starting to get the hang of it. I do want to talk a little bit more about, about pain. Um, cause there's a big section in your book about pain and in a sport like running, we often, I think, confuse pain with running related fatigue and discomfort, especially when we're running a harder workout or running a race for sure. And, you know, we experience actual pain when we're injured, which is unfortunately quite often in our sport. But how do you define pain and and what is the purpose of experiencing pain?
1: Well, it's a... Uh, it- the The purpose of pain is to protect the body from perceived uh physical threats to the body, so in that sense, there is kind of a rough analogy between fatigue and pain. Pain is uh, a conscious experience, an emotion you have that uh, is intended to protect you against the perceived threat of of using too much of your uh, energy stores and maybe causing some kind of catastrophic failure, and the amount of energy you have, or something like that. That's the view of Tim Noakes. If you know Tim Noakes, and that's kind of his central governor theory of fatigue. So when you're when you're running when you're running down, uh, the brain is basically you know monitoring all of the information in your body and telling you to stop. It's creating an emotion telling you now's the time to uh, stop because something bad's going to happen. And part of the reason you get more fatigue resistant is you kind of train your brain to realize that nothing bad's going to happen. We can let up this governor a little bit and, and run a little bit faster, a little bit longer and, and nothing bad's going to happen. And there is a rough analogy to pain there. People uh, don't understand that much that a lot of the reasons we have pain is enhanced sensitivity in the threat detection systems in the body, not just a dangerous condition in the body. So if your back hurts, that might be because there's really damage in the back Or it might be because the nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system, the brain is just very sensitized to what's going on there and is creating this pain to kind of get you to be really careful about that back, even though there's not a super dangerous condition in the back. That's one of the reasons pain is so incredibly complex.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when you were defining pain as this protection mechanism against a perceived threat. I thought the word perceived was very interesting there. And then you said also that, that
1: definitely the interesting word in that phrase.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. That's the operative word. It's doing a lot of work in that sentence. And, uh, and then you said, you know, you, you might have pain because you have enhanced sensitivity in an area. And, and I'm almost thinking, is pain just entirely in our heads? I mean, obviously, there's some physical, uh, it can be some physical cause to it. But how much of it is in our heads?
1: Well, pain, pain is very much in the brain, but in the head is a very bad phrase. So let, let me just clarify that a little bit. So pain uh, depends on a certain kind of brain activity happening. You know, the brain is processing sensory information from the body. Like if I get a knife in, in my back, there's sensors uh, in my back. They're going to send sensory information uh, to the brain, and the brain's going to process that information. It's going to perceive there's a problem there. It's going to create pain to warn me of the dangerous condition and get some doctors help something like that so pain always depends on certain kinds of brain activity happening so in some sense pain is in the brain you shouldn't say that pain is in the head because that sounds like pain is imaginary or made up or we could just think pain away if we had the right attitude uh, now pain doesn't does depend on perception and perceptions uh, can be individual and they can be kind of mistaken and there, there can be illusions in the way we perceive things and we can we can change perceptions uh, you know, based on what we think or what we feel or or lots of stuff. Uh, but we can't think pain away. Uh, and pain is always real.
0: Yeah, and I didn't mean to say that it was just uh, some imaginary thing in the no, ether. I know you
1: did but that's an important caveat that I always want to throw out there.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for for that distinction. Um now one of the other things that you mentioned in your book that I wanted to explore a little bit that I thought was just fascinating is this idea of pain habits. Can you talk more about this and, and what exactly a pain habit might be?
1: Well, uh, pain depends on certain patterns of activity happening in the nervous system. This is this is, a, this is a pretty complex idea. So when, when you have a, a pain, there, uh, let's say in your back, there there's a certain nervous system pathway uh, that uh, – you know, instantiates the pain and neurons that, uh, fire together, wire together. And over time, if a certain neural pathway is is going down all the time in your brain, it kind of facilitates that pathway and makes it, uh, more likely to happen. Uh, so this is why if you've had pain for a long period of time, let's say any pains that you have had for six months and are not going away, even though there's been a really good chance to heal the damage that caused the pain in the first place. Uh, If that pain has been going on for a long period of time, it can become in the nature of the habit of habit where the nervous system has kind of like become better at producing that pain signal. And that makes it more likely to have that pain, even though the tissues have kind of healed a little bit.
0: This is fascinating. So when the nervous system becomes more sensitive to producing this pain signal, uh, does, does that mean there's still something going on in the previously injured tissue that is causing that? Or is this, is this a, a, a neural response in the brain?
1: Yeah, well, it's, this is a, there's a lot of uncertainty here and you, you find a lot of debate and different opinions among different people. Um, low back pain is kind of one of the best examples of, uh, something that we've studied a ton, but that we still don't really know that much about. So, I mean, there's a guy and, oh yeah, uh, his name's Natcheson. He studied it all his life. I think the quote is, um, he studied pain for like you know, 30, 40 years and I think low back pain for 30, 40 years. And I think at the end of it, he says, if anyone says they they know what causes low back pain, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, so people will debate, is, it, is this... Um, happening because of continued undetected tissue pathologies in the low back or is it sensitivity in the nervous system or, and, and is that sensitivity in the peripheral nervous system like inflammation right around the nerves that are detecting what's going on in the back or is it further up the chain of the nervous system to the brain where the limbic system can, can kind of start to get re- really sensitive about getting signals from certain parts of the body Um, it it, it is very, very hard to know exactly why someone's hurting for a long period of time. But one of the things we do know is that pain that's been going on for a while is, can be really, uh, very hard to get rid of and very resistant to treatment. And so, you know, if if someone comes into my office and they've said they've had chronic back pain for, for five years, uh, they have hope of getting rid of it,
0: but it's challenging. Have you found any effective treatments for that kind of long term pain where, you know, the research is is not really conclusive on whether or not there's still some lingering damage in the tissue and it could be just this, you know, neural uh, response in the brain? I mean, how do you even begin to address something like that?
1: Yeah, well, what the research, I think, pretty conclusively shows with many kinds of chronic pain, including chronic low back pain, is that exercise is good, movement is good, physical activity is good, Uh, an attitude of self-efficacy is good. That means believing that you are the one that can fix your problem and you have some control of your problem. Um, And the great thing is so many different kinds of exercise is good. So a core strengthening program is good, Uh, an aerobic exercise program is good. Walking is good. Yoga is good. Pilates is, is good. None of these things work quite as well as we would like, and none of them are a magic bullet. But uh, th- the interesting thing is that the benefits of this exercise seem to apply to everybody, no matter how much you try to specifically diagnose exactly why they have that back pain. Uh, it's it's just as likely that walking is going to help, the strength training is going to help. Now, di- different individuals are, are different. So y- you may Easily find that with one individual, uh, you know, I, I, when someone comes in with a back pain, I ask them, "What's making it better? What's making it worse?" Well, uh, for some people walking feels great. Great, walk some more. That's part of what your treatment for your problem. And so we just kind of go through the different things that tend to help people. And most people will find that at least one or two things tend to help. And it might be different for for different people. So I, I want to make sure people have tried mobility work and functional coordination work and strength work and running or cycling or swimming. Um, I have them go through all the kind of um, things that tend to make people feel better, but it's kind of hard to know in advance exactly what's going to work. I can't give people a prescription. I have to make them explore and experiment and try new things and have hope about that and be curious about that. And that's kind of, again, the playful idea. That's that attitude of exploration and curiosity that I think is helpful.
0: Yeah, and this is such a great testament to the idea that to find what works for you, you know, you have to go through a bunch of different things um, and see how they interact with your body and how you respond to them. And and I think this is true not only for, you know, treating some of those long-term issues of pain, but also finding a training style and a training approach that really works for you and your goals, uh, you know, and everything from picking out your running shoes. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is, uh, so, so important to all of those different areas because, you know, we're all unique and and our bodies respond to these different training stresses in, in very different ways.
1: Yes. And it's, and it's, it's unpredictable. I, I've got a quote from, uh, Ben O'Nig, the, the, uh, shoe researcher in my book about, you know, our our difficulty in predicting ahead of time, which kinds of shoes would be best for which kinds of runners based on sophisticated biomechanical, you know, analyses of their stride and their foot posture. And he says, just whatever shoes feel good, (laughs) the ones that you should wear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's that's my advice too. I, I never, never go down the road of recommending specific models of shoes because I honestly have no idea. And I don't think anyone else does either.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a humbleness about your ability to predict things with the, these scientific methods that kind of underlies part of the uh, what I'm talking about here. But uh, you know, with running, there, man, there is so much that we do know. I mean, there's no no mystery about uh, you guys. You guys have got a sport where lots of the variables are very measurable, and a lot of it's very controllable, and you can really apply science to get better at what you're doing. It's, it's kind of different than some of the sports I'm interested in where it's there's more complex events going on and you can't measure anything.
0: Yeah, there's, there's strategy and gameplay that takes that complexity to a whole different level for sure. Um, so Todd, I want to end with some actionable advice for our listeners. If you look back over all the work that you put into this book, not to mention your previous book, A Guide to Better Movement, what would you say are the low-hanging fruits, the relatively easy strategies that perhaps have outsized payoffs to help us runners move better, perform better, and hopefully have less pain?
1: Well, that's a great phrase, low-hanging fruit, because that's in my book as well. And I, 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 that's kind of my advice is pick the low-hanging fruit. So to kind of go back to that uh, diet analogy, you know, there's so many different uh things that you need to eat to be healthy. There's many different kinds of nutrient deficiencies that you might have. If you're someone that's, uh, you know, if you've got a, a vitamin C deficiency and you're getting scurvy, eating just a few lemons or limes is going to deliver this incredible benefit, right? Uh, but then after you eat those and you cure that deficiency, eating additional limes or lemons is not really going to do any, anything at all for you. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, find a, a weakness, you know health and health and performance is this multidimensional thing and there's there's social aspects there's psychological aspects there's the sleep part of it there's the nutrition part of it you know within running there's there's running with speed and there's running with endurance and then there's the there's the uh the, the running form aspect to it you know if you can if you can find and eliminate a something that you just an area that you've just completely neglected that can usually be done with like a minimum of effort, right? Because you can move from the novice stage to the intermediate stage really, really easily. So finding that low-hanging fruit, whatever it is for you and picking it, I guess would be my advice and, and being aware of all the different dimensions there are to running and the different you know targets you could aim at.
0: I love it. Todd, that is so helpful. Thank you so much for your expertise and sharing some of the big concepts and ideas from your latest book. Have I missed anything that you think is important for our listenership of runners that you'd like to add?
1: No, not at all. uh, You said you didn't read the book, but somehow you were able to (laughs) kind of hit on all the best, uh, best parts of it and even use the phrases I
0: used in the book. Wow. I'm, I don't know how I could do that, but uh, I just really looked at the table of contents and just reading the table of contents. I was okay. Yeah. I I had to add to card because that book is really speaks to so many different topics that I'm interested in everything from, you know, movement and mobility to pain and improving your performance by not necessarily working harder, but working smarter. So uh, I can't wait until it arrives. I should probably check the tracking because it probably (laughs) should be here. (laughs) It should already have been here.
1: Well, thanks a lot for having
0: me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my discussion about movement with Todd Hargrove. If you'd like to check out his book, look for Playing With Movement, How to Explore the Many Dimensions of Physical Health and Performance, on Amazon or your nearest bookstore. You can also find him on Twitter at Todd Hargrove. And another big thanks to our sponsor, Shorefeet. They make a colorless, odorless, and immediate-acting anti-odor spray for smelly running shoes. And this stuff works, guys. I was hesitant to partner with them at first, so I decided to try it myself. And Feet delivered. As soon as I sprayed the shoes and it dried, nearly all of the smell was gone, and it stayed almost entirely gone for weeks. Just one quick suggestion. Don't put the spray on very thick, because then it won't dry completely clear. But... I've just had a great experience with the product. It's incredibly useful, and I love that it's made in the USA, and each bottle can treat about 10 pairs of shoes. My next project is using it on a pair of new running shoes because it's best as a preventative tool rather than on already smelly shoes. It doesn't wash off, it doesn't wear away, and it doesn't contain any nasty chemicals. If you're surrounded by filthy shoes, go to shorefeet.com and get a twin pack of their spray. It works And my wife is very thankful for that. All right, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, if this podcast is giving you value, then a review in Apple Music is something that would make this host very happy. Thank you for listening, and we'll be in touch very soon.